Welcome to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Today is September 21st and we are broadcasting to you from the University of British Columbia Vancouver campus from unceded Musqueam territory. My name is Christine Kim and today I am the show host for this afternoon. On today's show we will be featuring an interview with author of best-selling Canadian book Pacific Seaweed, Louis Druel, and communications manager of the Arts and Culture District at UBC, Deb Pickman. Finally, we will also be talking about the International Flamenco Festival, which ended yesterday on September the 20th. To start off, let's talk about Dr. Louis Druel, who used to teach marine botany at SFU. He published a book known as Pacific Seaweed, and during its first release in 2000, the book sold more than 10,000 copies. It has recently been republished this past June. The new copy is not only an updated version of its predecessor, but it is also an expanded version with new additions such as a kelp recipe cooking guide. I caught up with Louis to get the latest on the new and improved Pacific Seaweeds. So, my name is Louis Droll. I'm a professor emeritus. I've taught uh, marine botany at Simon Fraser for over 36 years. And I live in Bamfield on the west coast of Vancouver Island. And with my partner, Bridge, uh, friend, Bridget Clarkston, uh, we have revised the original Pacific seaweeds into a modern, greatly enhanced version. The original uh, Pacific seaweeds sold over 10,000 copies, which in Canadian terms is a double best seller. So that's pretty good for a seaweed book. <laughs> How's your day going? It's going very well. We're having a real autumn day here in Banfield. It's beautiful but crisp. And uh, we're getting ready to go on a holiday. So we're quite busy, actually. Well, why don't you tell our listeners who don't really know too much about the book Pacific Seaweeds a little bit about what the book is about and maybe even just a little bit of an inside peek into what the contents of the book are like. So Pacific Seaweeds is, first of all, a guide to the seaweeds of the coast of the north of the west coast of North America. Uh, it covers about 200 species. There's a total of 600, so we hit a lot of the major ones at least. Um, so each description has, uh, has a very nice colored photograph with it. Uh, you learn something about it, like who described it the first time. Uh, does it have a particular economic function in our lives? Things like that. And in addition to that, uh, there are um, several what I call essays, and these cover such things as kelp's contribution to gastronomy, umami. So umami is a, a series of compounds which are found in kelp, um, and um, this word, which is a Japanese word, has just recently entered the Western vocabulary, and it means food enhancer. So when you have umami, when you mix it with other foods, then you end up with a better taste. And so this mm. whole thing has generated a new discipline called gastrophysics, if you believe that or not. And these people sit around and they try to blend these umami ingredients to come up with superior diets for particularly people in hospitals, uh, in old folks' homes and stuff, you know, when you start to lose your diet, your appetite. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing is in there. Um, 
another essay would talk about what we call the kelp highway and this is an alternative way that the americas got uh, populated by people coming out of asia initially it was thought they came across the top of north america through these big valleys which have been scraped clean by glaciers uh, but the kelp highway has people coming along in small boats and just dipping into kelp beds as they work their way down the coast and this explains a lot of problems that the anthropologists have like the oldest sites in north america are the further south whereas the youngest ones are the further north which you would expect the opposite of if it was the inland highway and so there, there are variety of things like that. Oh, and also I should mention, yes, uh, lots of recipes with kelp and other oh. seaweed. And uh, these were worked up by my partner, Ray Hopkins, and uh, they're nicely presented in the book. It's uh, really a big feature of the book. Do you want to explain just a little bit about the kind of process that you had to go through in, in creating it? Well, you know, they say that you have to spend 10,000 hours to become special, a specialist in anything. So it's to say that I spent almost 30 years familiarizing myself with all these different species of seaweed to I knew them beyond just their technical aspects, but their kind of their sociology as well. Wow, 30 years. Yeah, so it's just, you know, you just accumulate this information. I mean, the actual writing of the first edition just took one year. I was drawing upon many, many, many years of experience. Now with my... my uh, writing partner who is by the way the excellent photographer brought all the almost all the illustrations to this book mm. uh, we've come up with this new this new one which uh, we have great hopes for i was taking a flip through just your biography as well and and it looks like you've also have written already a new book called sadar salmon and weed yeah this is this is uh taking uh, pacific seaweeds a step further where i just get rid of all the science and put people and episodes and hijinks. The story of uh, the village of Banfield in the 1970s, where the hippies come and interact with the conservative fishermen, and uh, this tale evolves with you know a little violence, a little sex, and a lot of hijinks. Tell me about what you guys kind of made you guys want to update and expand the already incredibly successful initial, I guess, release of the book. Yeah, well, I think I think the main reason is that it's been 15 years since the original came out. Mm-hmm. And since then, there have been many, many, many scientific discoveries, new species, there have been name changes, and as right. I mentioned, like the kelp highways come on mind, the umami situation, uh, using kelp to uh, track radioactive uh, fallout from various episodes like Fukushima. All these things have happened in the last few years, so it's all new. Uh, there's just a bunch of new. That's all, and so it had to it had to be updated from that perspective. You know. Are you a big fan of Japanese food? Yes, we are. Um, so we do have we have a seaweed company. My oh, wife. really? And so we sell to places like Capers, um, and uh, Whole Foods now takes us, and uh, almost all the health food stores in the Lower Mainland. But. Uh, what what we've discovered is that the interest is not coming from the Asian portion of our population, but it's rather from folks like the, the people that run the Wolf in the Fog, which last year was named the best new restaurant in Canada, feature our, our kelp, and, the, and they actually call it a seaweed salad. And, uh, of course, Wickedness Inn features it. Uh, Tojo's, a five-star Japanese restaurant in Vancouver, features us. Yes. Uh, so there are a lot of... Uh, 
kind of Western application of seaweed, and, and you see that if you go look at the, um, the recipes in the book. So what's the name of your company? Uh, Canadian Kelp. Thank you very much, Louis, for your time and for speaking with me today about Pacific seaweed. Thanks for your interest, and uh, try a couple of the recipes and see what you think. You are listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. The Arts Report will be right back after a few short commercials. Hey, why so sad? Oh, nothing really. <laughs> Not very convincing, Jane girl. Whatever it is, I've got just the cure for it. One, two, three, four. Did you know CITR has a women's collective? This brand new collective is all about providing and fostering a community for women who are or who want to be in radio, fighting the gender disparity in media, and centering women's voices and issues. If you are a female-identified person or ally who's already involved in radio or wants somewhere to start, this collective is for you. Email womenscollective at citr.ca for more information and to get involved. And tune in Friday at 6 p.m. for the collective show Lady Radio, featuring music, interviews, events, news, commentary. Basically anything we care to talk about. See you then. Well, how do you like it? There's only one word for it. Terrific. <laughs> you know, I'm so proud of it. It's almost indecent of me. Diversify your university involvement and experience a new culture today. Isaac UBC is the world's largest student-run organization that specializes in helping you get an internship or a volunteering opportunity abroad. With thousands of opportunities in over 127 countries and territories, this is truly an international experience. Apply today at isaac.ca. That's A-I-E-S-E-C dot C-A. Welcome back. I am Christine Kim, and you are listening to The Arts Report. Next up, we have Deb Pickman, the Marketing and Communications Manager of the Arts and Culture District of UBC. What is the Arts and Culture District at UBC, you ask? Well, listen to this interview because you'll find out. So maybe just to start off this interview, could you please say your full name and your position title at UBC? My name is Deb Pickman, and I am the Communications and Marketing Manager of the UBC Arts and Culture District. So for many of us who don't actually know what the UBC Arts and Culture District is, can you give a brief overview of what it is? <laughs> well, we're a combination of both academic units and, you know, more publicly facing units. For example, the Chan Center and uh, the Museum of Anthropology and then the ac academic units, uh, theater and film, UBC School of Music, which includes UBC Opera, and then um, the Belkin Art Gallery. And uh, they're, of course, affiliated with uh, Art History, Visual Art and Theory, or that. So that's mm. quite a range of different components mm. for the UBC Arts and Culture District. Um, so what's going to be happening this year within that district? First of all, the, uh, the Chan, for example, is bringing in the Chan Presents series, and that's a huge, wonderful array of world music uh, from around the globe. And it's just so amazing to have these artists coming right to our doorstep. And um, it's kind of special for all of us too because well we can all get a discount <laughs> and that includes when I say we staff uh, faculty students 
and uh, the University Neighborhood Association. Uh, students at the Chan make out particularly well because they always save a certain portion of every concert mm. for students at $15 tickets, and that's incredible. Uh, you know, every one of their concerts last year sold out except for one near the end of the term, and so reserving those tickets aside, you know, that would normally, many of them go for, you know, 60 to over $100 is just a fantastic opportunity. And it's like one of UBC's hidden secrets. A lot of students don't know about it. That's truly fair. Any other maybe inter-faculty, inter-gallery uh, events happening this year? UBC Opera is presenting a opera called The Consul, and it touches on themes of refugees, which has been so big in our world as of late, you know, locally and internationally. They're doing a series with the Liu Institute of uh, extra events for people to discuss the refugee crisis with experts. And uh, I, I think it's really wonderful to be able to experience a work of art and then talk about it, you know, just just emotionally as an audience member and then to be able to talk about it intellectually and emotionally. You know, it, it's one informs the other. So we're really looking forward to that coming up soon from the Chan. There's uh, going to be a preview of the music from that concert at our Harvest Festival, which is coming up on September 22nd. Uh, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> no, I mean, I'd actually love to hear a little bit more about the Harvest Festival, maybe those upcoming September events. Yeah, um, well... because they're right, right around the corner, really. Yes, let me digress to Harvest Festival, which is maybe where I should have started, because that is going to be an amazing opportunity, besides being a now iconic, epic outdoor dinner for a thousand of our closest friends here at UBC. Mm. Uh, the after, there's eight after events in the Arts and Culture District that are free with your wristband to the dinner. So that gives people a huge opportunity to get inside our doors and experience what it is we have to offer, whether you've been to one of our events or none of our events before. Just poke your nose in and try UBC Symphony. We're going to have improv in um, both of those in the Chan Center, and the Glass Atrium Bar is going to be open uh, for those events, but also to just visit for after-dinner drinks. MOA, Museum of Anthropology, just across the road, is uh, screening a documentary film uh, about the power of art to change, effect political change uh, around the world. And um, that is uh, screening in their gorgeous uh, movie theater, which a lot of people have never seen. And um, it's just a tiny off the way of their galleries. And if there isn't something in there when you're in the in the MOA, you just don't get a chance to see it. And then they're going to be doing uh, tours of their um, nationally acclaimed exhibit of Lawrence Paul Yuxwalupton called Unceded Territories. So, and, and that documentary um, film that they're showing is called uh, Cultures of Resistance, by the way. How art and creativity can be the ammunition and a battle for peace and justice. Aside from those things, we also have uh, a night at the opera, an open rehearsal, and that's where we're getting the preview of Minotti's The Consul, as well as some selections from The Magic Flute, which opera has been performing this summer in uh, the Czech Republic, in some of Europe's uh, most beautiful old concert halls. And the old odd is 
our very own beautiful <laughs> concert hall. It's just a glorious space, and I, I encourage anybody that hasn't seen it to get in and have a look. It's just uh, eye-opening. And also UBC's very first class was held there, which is kind of cool. It used to be called the New Odd. <laughs> And um, then we also have this fantastic exhibit that just opened last night at the Belkin, and they're going to be staying open late for uh, the diners after Harvest Festival. Their their project uh, is art installation is called The Last Waves, and it is um, oh, it is just a surreal um, I- interactive exhibit that draws you right into its spell. There's three uh, major vignettes in the in the small gallery um, that you can interact with. And just to give you an example, there's one called uh, the Press Bar, where you go up to this uh, bar that's been created by the artist, and there's a keyboard, and you can type in your dream, um, you know, from last night or many nights ago, just one of your private dreams and then it's projected up on the wall in a newspaper format with other people's dreams and it it flickers there for about half an hour and it's just it's just so um it's very magical mm-hmm. and th- and then beyond that they're going to publish every so often during the um exhibition they're going to be publishing a newspaper with people's dreams in them and right now they've got a newspaper that people can read at the bar with the artist's dreams in it so very rich and uh, cool um, exhibit they've got going on. Uh, and then more on the art exhibition front, Art History Visual Art is doing um, opening night for their uh, studio faculty show, which will be just tremendous at the Ava Gallery. That's a new little gem of a gallery that's in the Audain building on University Boulevard. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that's going to be very special, and it's great that we just happened to hit their opening night, so it would be a terrific chance to rub shoulders with, um, you know, fine art students and profs and yeah, so that's um, in a nutshell everything that's happening after dinner. But the dinner itself, <laughs> there's six courses if you oh dare to eat two desserts. <laughs> it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, there's two salads, two mains, and two desserts, and you are welcome to eat them all if you dare. So do you want to just remind our listeners then the date as well as um, the pricing of the tickets for students and where they can get t- tickets for Harvest Feast? Pricing of the stu- for the students is twenty two dollars, okay. and it's on September twenty second. Oh. At four thirty, the action starts, okay. and then uh, the activities run till about nine. For uh, UNA and staff, it's thirty. If there's any people listening in from there, and um, yeah, that's they sold out last year. I don't think they can sell more than a thousand tickets. That's the capacity to mm-hmm. make all this great food. Um, you know, uh, I'll just can I run over the menu? <laughs> sure, sure. It's so good. This is going to be a good way to get people to go. I think the menu, yes. Autumn harvest salad with roasted butternut squash, pear couscous, baby spinach, sun-dried cranberries, apple cider vinaigrette, blackberry beet salad. I won't go into all what that entails. I think that's evident. Pan-seared wild British Columbia salmon, Tuscan pumpkin penne, sticky date baby cakes. That's. I think I could create a fringe show called that. <laughs> 
a great name. And fire roasted peanut butter s'mores. Are there any other events that you wanted to talk about coming in September? Very, very uh, exciting. Something new is happening, and it's student-initiated. It's called Art Week, and it's during Week of Harvest Festival from the 19th to the 23rd. And what's happening is that there is a just a plethora of programming, and it's all free for students to uh, check out and attend. Um, there's going to be a chance. There's a new um, exhibit in the Hatch. That's the uh, art gallery, sweet little art gallery inside the Nest, the new student union building. And they're going to take students or and whomever would like to attend uh, right into their a vault of wonderful artwork, that modern art that's been donated to UBC's permanent collection since the 40s, and it's it's uh, pretty stellar. And no one else except the gallery staff and faculty have ever been in there. So I think that's kind of a, for a real art lover. That's a real great sneak peek. There's going to be an outdoor art tour of uh, UBC's outdoor art exhibits done by the Belkin, and. Um, so if they, uh, anyone interested uh, wants to check out the um, Arts and Culture District calendar, they'll find out all the programming uh, from Arts Week will be linked there. Um, that, uh, that link is artsandculture.ubc.ca. And that's just a good rule of thumb. Uh, anytime people are looking for something creative to do this new term, we're, we've got a load of stuff in there, and uh, we add stuff uh, weekly, daily, by the minute, <laughs> as it turns up. And just because UBC Theatre and Film is a special place in my heart, because that's oh. how I started, um, as, at least at CITR Radio, do you want to go over the 2016-17 season? Yeah, I know last season it was all-female playwrights. That was kind of their theme. Um, what can we expect from the Department of Theatre and Film this year? It's a beautiful season coming up. It's uh, Elizabethan intrigue, 21st century political subterfuge, riotous Quebecois women, plus the premiere of a feature film. So uh, added to that is Beckett 16, celebrating all things Beckettian. <laughs> and that's a fundraiser for student scholarships and a night of um, Beckett and after show party fun in the lobby with uh, copious amounts of cake and some champagne. Uh, but the first show of the season is Edward II, and it's going to be in the Telus's uh, stunning little Telus studio theater with the wonderful box seats. It's one of my favorite spaces on campus. It's uh, We've called in a, a guest um, artist, uh, Mary Vingo, to direct this piece, so I think it's going to be really something special. I'm hearing wonderful things from the tech crew, and when they're buzzing, you know it's good. It's a really beautiful space to experience theater and uh, we haven't been in there for a couple of years just due to scheduling conflicts the lack of space for rehearsal uh, of um, music and anyway we're back in there and uh, we're really happy and that opens on the 29th and then uh, of course before every opening which is kind of another UBC secret uh, there's a um, preview seven dollars Oh, mm, that, so that's students love fantastic. great deals. So after Edward II, the, the next plays in the season are um, Love and Information by wonderful contemporary playwright Carol Churchill. 
and then Les Belles Sur by Michel Tremblay, a fantastic Canadian um, uh, playwright. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for all that information, Deb. Um, I'm going to wrap up this interview with uh, just a couple more questions about the vision and the goal for UBC Arts and Culture District this year. Well, this Arts and Culture District was a dream a long time coming um, and originally initiated by UBC President Norman McKenzie, who was one of our longest uh, uh, running presidents uh, in the um, uh, 40s and uh, 50s. Really? Yes. And the thinking was that UBC uh, it needed an arts and culture district to compete with the great universities of Europe and the world. And um, they actually, today we would Google, but they, maybe, they sent uh, faculty around the world to visit um, the, the world's most prominent universities and discover best practices for not just an arts and culture district, but for um, scholarly arts and culture uh, studies and practice around the world. And uh, what was discovered was that there were uh, some universities that were only studying theater, studying opera, um, you know, no messy uh, studio artists, right? But the more forward-thinking universities did have artists in their midst. And uh, so that w- all this information was brought back to UBC and deliberated, and that's when the decision was made that uh, not only would we have an arts and culture district to feed the life of the, the campus, um, but also that we would have studio artists. So as a result, we now train, um, we have a world, world-renowned training program for opera singers, uh, conductors, directors of theater, lighting designers, painters, you know, and on and on. And it's just phenomenal uh, resource, not just for UBC, but, you know, surrounding um, the campus and internationally uh the the mandate of the you know the synergy that was intended with that arts and culture district was rediscovered i think uh about four years ago by our current um dean of arts gage avril and uh he got together with all the uh heads and directors and they came up with a vision for uh creating you know being more than the sum of our parts and being a real district as opposed to, you know, being a little bit more in our own um, in our own uh, venues and becoming, you know, looking, searching for excellence alone, but to be reaching out and creating things together. So um, that's when I started in my job. And, uh, you know, it's just been a real thrill to get, uh, communicate more of what it is that we provide to the university and also come up with some great um, new programming and ideas that uh, are going to uh, that get us in, um, in including and incorporating uh, other units external to the arts and culture district so mm-hmm. um, yeah and part of that effort is our ticket tricycle which you might have seen out on the byways on imagine day Oh, that's right, yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to say um, that we didn't get to touch on? Just want to encourage people to come on into the theater. We would just love to have you and uh, keep abreast of our social media channels. They're all arts, uh, sorry, UBC Arts Culture. Just that, whether it's Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. And we'll be having a lot of ticket giveaways 
and uh, letting people know about all these free things that are happening throughout the year. There's so much. Uh, one thing in particular, the noontime concerts, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock sometimes through School of Music, go on your lunch. It's just absolutely thrilling. And um, that happens, oh, two, three times a month. There's either a 3 or $5 concert coming from School of Music. That's That's just you know, one thing in among many uh, treats in store to like replenish you when you're feeling stressed and uh, give you a place to wander with your friends, a cheap date night, (laughs) all of that. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. No problem. I hope you have a wonderful Friday. Thanks uh, again. Thank you. Bye, Deb. Bye. You are listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. The show will be back after a few short commercials. Boost your resume by studying abroad and get that dream job. Don't miss the Study and Go Abroad Fair on Saturday, September 24th from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. at the Vancouver Convention Center. Admission is free. Come early at noon to listen to our feature seminar and scholarships. For more information, check out the website on www.studyandgoabroad.com. This is your captain speaking. The next destination is... Join us every Saturday from 8 till noon for Saturday's Edge with your host, Steve Edge, as he guides you on a journey to world and roots music with African, Latin, and European music in the first half, followed by Celtic, blues, songwriters, and Cajun in the second half. Hey, 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 we're back. This is the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. And my name is Christine Kim. Thank you for joining us on today's show. Now, the Fringe Festival is over, sadly, but I've got one last Fringe review that I'm so happy I get to finally share with you guys. I saw Dying City, directed by Tanya Mativanan, on its final day of performance at The Colch, which was this past Saturday, the 17th at 7 p.m. The premise of the play, Dying City, is about a woman whose husband was killed in action in Iraq two years prior. Suddenly, the twin brother of her husband, who she hasn't seen since the funeral, shows up at her doorstep just to talk. The two rehash old memories and try to figure out where they stand with one another now that a beloved one of both their pasts has died. It's a pretty emotional play full of a lot of intense debates and raw emotion. As mentioned, this play was directed by Tanya Mativanen and her cast features Christine Borderlin and Garland Chang. I got to speak with all of these guys actually before the debut of their performance for This Fringy Life podcast. And if you haven't listened to This Fringy Life podcast yet, please go do check that out on our Arts Report Mixcloud page. The link to our Arts Report Mixcloud page is www.mixcloud.com slash artsreport underscore CITR. That's mixcloud.com slash artsreport underscore CITR. Go check it out. While the character of Peter is quite timid and anxious, his brother, Craig, the one who was killed in action, is loud and sure of himself. Garland Chang switched from one personality type to another throughout the play really seamlessly, and I wanted to commend him for doing such a great job in acting a pretty difficult role out. Christine, too, did a fantastic job in playing up the vulnerability and hurt of her character as the psychological and sexual damage that was done to her begins to resurface in her memory. Um, 
And that's kind of the other thing, too, about this play, that the play doesn't just tackle grief, but it tackles a lot of serious themes such as sexual violence and other things like the morality of the Iraq war in 2004. Overall, I enjoyed the performance and thought it helped audience members contemplate serious political issues that they may not have thought of before. Now, another festival beyond the fringe that recently ended is the International Vancouver Flamenco Festival. I got to see one of their most earliest performances on September 14th, Wednesday. The performance was by Toque Flamenco. I loved the performance. The performance was at Centro Flamenco, a dance studio located on 4th and Alma Street. It's in the Jericho Village where the No Frills and BC Liquor Store are located. Um, For all you UBC students out there that probably go to No Frills like every other weekend. But anyways, Centro Flamenco, the dance studio, is squeezed right in between the BC Liquor Store and No Frills. Um, When I attended the performance... I definitely took a little bit of time just trying to find the studio because it really is squeezed right in between those two um, stores. Inside uh, the dance studio, though, the dance space was really cozy and it was really intimate. It seated about 15 to 20 people, and the performance by Toque Flamenco featured one singer percussionist, Mario Sota, I hope I said his name right, a flamenco guitarist, Pedro Mole, and flamenco dancer, Mar- Marilu Lapeque. I had never seen flamenco dance before, so I didn't know what to expect. And while the style of dance definitely grew on me over the course of the performance, I was immediately in love with the music of flamenco. Mario Sota and Pedro Mol are two absolutely musically gifted people, and I seriously would not have minded if they actually continued to play for the entire night. Now... Mary Lou, the dancer, my goodness, she could tap her feet at speeds I'd never actually seen before. And her facial expressions were so striking and daring that I could see why after one performance, people would want to go learn flamenco dance. I, as you can tell, truly enjoyed the performance and felt like it was the perfect introduction to flamenco. And I want to share this incredible, newfound, beautiful style of dance um, for all you listeners out there. So for more information on Tok Flamenco and to listen to some of their music, um, to find out perhaps even when they're next performing, please do go to www.tokeflamenco.ca. And the way you spell that is T-O-Q-U-E Flamenco, F-L-A-M-E-N-C-O dot C-A. While this next interview was published on our Arts Report Mixcloud about two weeks ago in promotion of the festival, it has never aired live on our broadcast. I'm going to be playing the interview with Artistic Director of the Flamenco Festival, Rosario Anser. Report host Christine Kim here. In the midst of our beloved Fringe Festival, there's actually another festival that will be going on in our beautiful Van City. That is the Vancouver International Flamenco Festival. Back for its 26th run, it begins this upcoming Saturday, September the 10th, and runs until September the 20th. This year, the festival features Spanish gypsy dance as well as the premiere of a new flamenco dance company, Mercedes Amaya. I caught up with Arts Report friend and 
and artistic director of the Vancouver International Flamenco Festival, Rosario Anser. Take a listen. first start off with introductions. Can you please say your full name as well as your involvement with the 2016 Flamenco Festival? Well, my name is Rosario Anser and I'm the artistic director and uh, co-founder with my husband Victor Coste of the Vancouver International Flamenco Festival. Perfect. And I do remember speaking with you last year, and it's so great to have you back on the show. For all our listeners who don't know what it is, um, give us an overview about what this festival is about. Well, thank you for inviting me back. I really appreciate it to get this opportunity to inform all UBC staff and students. Our festival starts this Saturday. We do a flamenco show for children. So there will be some children uh, performing this Saturday at 1 o'clock and Sunday at 1 o'clock in the picnic pavilion at Granville Island. It's a free outdoors performance. Then we continue on Tuesday with a um, show called Understanding Flamenco at the Vancouver Public Library. This is a collaboration that we have for many years, every year during the festival. And it's a lecture demo. Uh, where we talk about flamenco, about the history, about the music, about the dance, uh, while um, we have dances in between. And the, later on, we have a Q&A answer, uh, answering questions. So that is very popular. So people learn a lot about flamenco. So then we continue on Wednesday with a local performance at Centro Flamenco. They are called Toque Flamenco. And on Thursday, we have a contemporary dancer also at Centro Flamenco, Rosana Terraciano. She is uh, an artist who is uh, pushing the boundaries of flamenco and doing a very interesting work. And she will be teaching a workshop at Centro Flamenco about uh, contemporary flamenco on Friday. Then we have our guest, our uh, featured guest, which is Carmen. She's a a niece of uh, the grad icon, flamenco icon, Carmen Amaya. Mm. Everybody, a lot of people knows about who this lady was. And she, her name, Mercedes Amaya, uh, she was, goes by La Winnie, uh, will bring a dancer from Spain, from Barcelona, and her husband is the, the guitarist, and also a gypsy singer. She is um, what uh, you can say a very, um, the gypsy style. She brings the gypsy style to flamenco to the festival for for the first time in Vancouver. Um, we all have a very good guest artist in the festival, but she has a very, very different style. So it will be a treat for audiences. And then on the Sunday, the 19th, we have a night especially for music, for the guitar and the singing. And also three workshops, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, from um, Nacho Blanco, a guest from Spain, Barcelona, and by Mercedes Amaya Lawini. And I think I gave you all the information. Wow, that is a lot of events. And I love the fact, Rosario, that it's not just performances. There's so much learning and so many workshops involved. Is flamenco then not just dance? Is it also a style of music and a style of um, singing as well? Yeah, flamenco started as a voice expression. 
And later on, and the the music was added, and the dance was added. So, and these three elements are glued by the compass, the musical structure of flamenco. So, um, when you see good flamenco, main uh, basically is these three elements together, and each each uh, they feed each other with energy, and that's why flamenco is so interesting. It seems so powerful. Because we are the three things are connected. So a people, a person who wants to dance, have to learn a lot about the music and about the singing. A singer who would like to perform should know a lot about the dance too and about how the the, the guitar works. And the guitarist also. The guitarist basically has the the hardest work because he has to find the tones of the singer at the same time that it has to follow, make rhythm for, mm. for the dancer. I mean, you being able to do this year after year, what is some of the biggest lessons that you've learned over the years putting on the Flamenco Festival of Vancouver? Well, it is uh, by no means a big task, and um, but we love it because we see the response of the audience. Um, this has uh, been amazing the way as um, the way that flamenco is being embraced in Vancouver. Uh, one of the things that I think is important that we are a much multicultural city, but if you come to one of our performances, you see people from all parts of life. Um, I think we have um, a different backgrounds, of different, uh, uh, mostly uh, there is a lot of um, uh, people, the immigrants, multicultural, but you can see, I've seen, that uh, people from West Vancouver are the same thing as from the east side. There is something um, in flamenco that attracts to people from all paths of life mm. because it speaks to your soul, it speaks to your feelings. And, and I think that's something that we all can understand easily. Do you want to explain a little bit more about the gypsy style of flamenco dance for us? Well, I want to believe uh, <laughs> can, uh, the, the, the dancer could explain that better, <laughs> but I would like to believe that this is something that uh, it is more, uh, it has a lot of spontaneity, a lot of, uh, we call them genial, but you can say fiery. It's a little bit like a memory that they have, like the genetic memory that they bring to to their performances. It is very special. When I see a gypsy, a good flamenco gypsy dancer, they bring something very, very special. It is more, um, how can I say, uh, earthy. It is more um, gutsy. It's very gutsy. You can feel it right away. And I'm sure the audience will enjoy uh, her performance very well, very much. And it seems like for this year, more than the other years, uh, there's more attraction for children and for kids of a very young age. Well, um, what we have noticed is that uh, most of the people who is interested in flamenco are young adults, uh-huh. let's say young, um, early 20s and up. They are interested in, uh, of course, some teens and some children, but it's not part of our culture. You know, something that children can see every day in TV or uh, hear about it. Mm. So unless you are from Mexico or you have been in Spain, um, but um, that's why we want to make it more accessible to them. And it's good that hopefully we can have uh, those uh, 
young audiences joining flamenco because there are mm, three schools here in Vancouver and um, maybe we can have another star soon in Vancouver. Were there any particular dancers for this festival that you're really excited to meet? Most of people I know. <laughs> you already know them. Uh, Mercedes, I know her for a long time because I'm Mexican and um, we have uh, crossed our paths many times. Uh, I'll be very excited also to see, to learn about more about um, Nacho Blanco. It will be the first time that I will see him. And uh, their singer too, Cachito. It's the first time they're going to hear it. But Mercedes and her husband, uh, Santiago, I know for a long time. Um, all of our guests, too, the um, Rosiana for, from Calgary and Kerry Alba from Saskatoon, I know her. But she's bringing a couple of um, uh, musicians that I never heard before. So this is something very exciting, too. Gotcha, gotcha. And just out of curiosity, Rosario, who's a famous flamenco dancer that you have always looked up to and that inspired you to do flamenco? Yeah, well, um, this is a very long story. <laughs> but to make it <laughs> we short, <have> time. <laughs> um, uh, she's, she doesn't live anymore, but uh, uh, the person that I saw, the first time that I saw flamenco and totally was smitten by it, is she, her name is Lola Flores. And uh, people used to call her La Faraona, like the Pharaoh, um, which uh, is something that people call gypsies in Spain, the, the, the kings from Egypt, the Pharaoh, mm -hmm. uh, as a feminine, the Faraona. Mm -hmm. And she was super popular in the 50s and 60s. She made lots of movies. And uh, when I was 10 years old, uh, my dad... Um, own the only festival in town, the, the only festival, the only cinema in town. Oh. So I used to spend hours uh, watching movies. <laughs> and one of those was Pena Penita Pena by Lola Flores. And when I saw her performing and singing and dancing, it, I was just transfigured. So since then, after that, I started imitating her words and her songs and her moves. And my family and my friends were so excited. They are very encouraging. They love the way that I, what I did. <laughs> so since then, I had this in me uh, until I was a little bit older, and then I started taking flamenco lessons. And then it was a lady, um, a company that performed in Mexico when I was in my late teens, Manuela Vargas, that, oh, God, when I saw her coming into the stage, live performance, no movie, live performance, mm -hmm with these singers and the guitar, and the way that she danced and moved, it, for me was so powerful that I, tears run into my face and my hair standing up by, by the back of my neck. Wow. It was a very strong impression, and I could not rest until I went to Spain. So it was when I became a professional dancer. I continued my studies there because I started in Mexico, but I became a professional dancer in Mexico. And it's where I met my husband, Victor, who's a guitarist. Mm -hmm. He's from Vancouver, and that's why we end up here. Were the people who were attracted, did they usually have other dance backgrounds? Mm -hmm. um, so things like, oh, you know, I used to do ballet, and then I got into flamenco. I've been here for uh, 27 years, um, and from the dances that I have um, uh, mentored, 
I think only one had a ballet background. So this is a good foundation. Ballet is a very good foundation. But after a while, if you decide to do flamenco, this is the only thing that you have to do. Because it, the technique is very opposite, it's different. And the, the style too. You, the technique defines the style. Mm. Or the, the style is defined by a, by a flamenco technique. Just like ballet, ballet, ha, ballet dancers have a look too. Mm-hmm. But this look is defined by the technique. So it's, uh, it's contradictory. And uh, I don't know anybody who can do very well flamenco and very well uh, ballet. Mm-hmm. So you have to decide for one or the other one. And also, uh, I mean, yes, there is a, a lot of people who, who are, have ballet or other dance background. But I can say easily that 70 or 80% are um, people who have not dance background or very little dance background. Well, that's really surprising, and I think that is encouraging to hear. And I think it's great that you guys are hosting those free workshops for people who've never even tried dance in general before. Um, So, Rosario, do you want to say any last words about the Flamenco Festival? See, well, um, I would love for all of them to come. Um, You just have to check our website, vancouverflamencofestival.org to see all the main stage performances, workshops, and free Mm -hmm. events that we are offering. Uh, We invite them to experience this amazing um, art form that is flamenco. It's really, really something that's captivating. I'm sure they will not be sorry. Please, please come and see us. Check our website and learn about all the performances and workshops that we have organized for you all. Do you guys have um, any sort of special student pass that people need to know about? You know what? We don't. But um, Most things are free. This is something that, yeah, well, because we offer a lot of free events. Right, right. We don't have a student pass. But it's something that we, thank you for mentioning because something that we should have uh, taken in consideration for next festival. Now, <laughs> if, if there is a group of UBC students who would like to come to perform, to see the performance or master performance at the Vancouver Playhouse, yeah. give us a call and say, hey, we are a group of so many UBC students, can you give us uh, a discount? And for sure, uh, I'm telling you that, that uh, I'm promised that to you right now. Hey, we that's... We can give a good price. Wow, okay. Um, UBC students, that is that is great incentive to come to the entirety of the festival, to see the shows, do the workshops, and experience flamenco like you've never experienced it before. And I can't wait to see all the new performances and the new performers. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Vancouver International Flamenco Festival, please do go to VancouverFlamencoFestival.org. And especially for any UBC students listening out there, take the opportunity to check this festival out at discount price. My name is Christine Kim, reporting for the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Thank you very much for tuning in to the Arts Report this afternoon. For more information on anything we talked about on today's program, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at CITR underscore Arts Report, and you can find us on Facebook under the name The Arts Report on CITR 101.9. My name is Christine Kim. Tune in again next week for another edition of The Arts Report on CITR 101.9.